You're listening to the Relationship-Centered Learning Podcast, a podcast to inspire and empower you to be a difference maker in a dysfunctional educational system. Hear weekly from adults and students who are having a radical impact in the education space as they share from their minds and hearts, giving us practical tools that we can take back to our classrooms and campuses. Here to take you outside the educational box is author, disruptor, and your host, Kevin Curtis. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. I need to first apologize for taking the last couple of weeks off from releasing any episodes. It was unexpected and a realization that I have come to terms with when there are too many moving pieces and I simply dropped the ball in getting episodes edited in time to keep up with my schedule of releases. I was simply overwhelmed with life and I can only apologize and stress that I'm building in a system to keep myself accountable moving forward. Now, with that said, I'm really excited about coming back and releasing today's episode with Allison Aspie. Allison has been an educator for over 20 years, a school leader for 15 of those years. Allison is a blogger and an author of several books that we will discuss during the episode. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation as it was filled with many great takeaways. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. Welcome to the Relationship Centered Learning Podcast, where we put relationships at the center of all learning. Hey, I am super excited to have Allison on the show today. Hey, welcome to the show, Allison. Thank you so much, Kevin, for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. Absolutely. Me too. So, hey, just like every episode, everyone, we start off with the flip five format of the GTKY questions. So I'm going to ask Allison five questions and she's going to flip five back at me. We'll get a chance to know each other a little bit better. So Allison, question number one is, do you have a favorite number? And if you do, is there like a, some type of like reason behind that favorite number? Yes. My favorite number is 19. My birthday is on May 19th. My mom passed away in 2012. And every time I see five for May and then 19 on the clock, in my mind, for whatever reason, that's my mom saying hi to me. So every time I see that, I glance at the clock, it says 519, um, my mom's saying hi, and I say hi back. Oh my God, I love that. Oh my God, that's awesome. All right, what things do you do every day that you wish could be automated? Oh man, cleaning the kitchen. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, I, was, I have a dishwasher, but you got to like rinse the dishes, put it in there, wipe down the counters. So. Yeah, yeah. It's the other stuff surrounding before that dishwasher gets involved. Okay. What's something that you've never been able to do well that you wish you did? Well, I mean, just in general, I'm pretty uncoordinated. Okay. So like I lose my balance easy. <laughs> um, I'm not very good at any kind of sports. I mean, I was a cheerleader. I was you know, pretty good at cheerleading, but so I love to be better at things like batting or sports. Okay. Well, for me is I would have loved I, 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 something I wish I would better. I wish I could play the musical instrument. Like mm. I, I don't play anything musical, but I'm always like, like, God, I wish I would have played, you know, and I, and I think I remember I took piano for a short amount of time as a kid. And I think I did. I got into middle school band for like a couple of weeks thinking that would be, yeah, that'd be good. Nope. The, I think I picked up the saxophone like one time for a week. So no, I've never played a musical instrument. So that would be something I wish, you know, I could do. All right. We're recording this right before Christmas. So does your family have like a tradition or something you do specifically or surrounding the holidays? So the we're, we're kind of, I guess, anti-tradition okay. in that we lived We've lived away from our family since my kids, my kids right now are 14 and 19. So they're, they're kind of out of the stage of, you know, Santa and traditions, but we've lived away from my family. So every year Christmas would look different because we'd spend Christmas and, you know, Christmas Eve at one grandparent's house or another grandparent's house. So we'd bounce around. And I think that just the, the biggest tradition is being together and I give them pajamas on Christmas Eve. So those yeah. are two. Absolutely. I, I know people exactly that do that. Like you said, you're, every Christmas, you're going to get that set of pajamas. I love that. And it's interesting because I guess some people are like, what? But I think once you become a part of that, it becomes comforting. Like, you know, yeah, I, I love that part. That's a great story. All right. Last one. Very interesting question, but a simple one. When you think back to like uh, our early days on the internet, what what is one of the first screen names that you remember creating? Like, you know, you had to create a screen name. Like so Allison. I would Alley Cat. Alley Cat. That's what my family called me. So 
I would be Alley Cat 1976 because that was the year I was born. There you go. See, that's why I always laugh because it's so funny when we think back when we first got <laughs> on like AOL or on the internet and we had to create a screen name. It's so interesting to think back to to what we what we thought back then or what we utilized. And so I always like asking that question. It kind of brings back a lot of memories. Yes, it does. All okay, right. so I can ask you five now? Yeah, but hey, I got one bonus question. I forgot to oh. ask you that. And that's okay. And here's what, and I do this very selfishly. So Allison, with your background, experience, and education, if you were hosting my show for one day, the Relationship Center Learning Podcast, who would you want to be a guest on the uh-huh. podcast that you could interview? So it would be William Glasser, but he could not because he's passed away. But William Glasser, and, and I encourage you, Kevin, if you don't know Choice Theory, mm-hmm. it would Choice Theory like would speak your language because it is a relationship-centered philosophy. Okay. And my first teaching position, and in fact, the teaching position, my second one that I spent the longest time at, was at a William Glasser quality school. And the foundation is relationship. So he passed away, I don't know, maybe 2008 or something like that. But, or, you know, maybe I could interview, I don't know if his wife is still alive, but that would be, he would be a great podcast guest. Awesome. Relationship centered podcast. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. I do that for selfish reasons so I can kind of forget from the good guests, but it also enlightens me into who to consider and who you think is valuable for that. I mean, right. you know, unfortunately, you can't really have him as a guest. But. <laughs> Absolutely. But I did learn to go definitely look at his work. So I appreciate yep. that. All right. So that's my questions. You got five for me. Okay. So I think you might have asked, asked that username question because you had an interesting username when the internet first started. So Tell us what yours was. <laughs> See, I was trying not to do that. I was just, no, I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> so believe it or not, in high school, I was a, a football player and one of my best friend's dads. I played a variety of different positions, but I also did the kicking. So like place kicking, punting, you know, like that. And so I don't even know why, but one day he would, when I would come over, I would walk in his house and he'd be like, the toe. He would call me the toe. I don't know why. <laughs> It's not like you kicked with just your toe, right? But it was just so funny. He would always call me the toe. And so my favorite number is 12. It's my birthday. And it was my jersey number. And so 12 has just been kind of that number. So I was the toe 12. That was my (laughs) That is very interesting. Okay, so my next question is, what is your favorite vacation spot? Okay, so when I answer this question, it is based on experience. In the Bahamas, there's an island called Eleuthera. And, and I've had that question a couple of times on the show, and I've mentioned it. If you're not familiar with it, it's not Nassau. So it's not the big casinos. It's across the, the bay. It's a little thin island called Eleuthera. It is amazing. One side of the island is the Atlantic. The other side is the Caribbean. So if you actually go to the north end of the island, you can see the teal water meet the deep blue. Wow. It is, there's no high rises, no big old buildings. It's low, uh, low buildings, Airbnbs. You live with the locals. In other words, you drive on the wrong side of the road. You eat, you know, they have food, they have gas, they have uh, liquor, grocery stores. But literally beaches are like just hidden spots along up and down along the coast. And you can go to the Atlantic side or the Caribbean side. And it's just, it's amazing. It is yeah, like, it know. is literally like the lowest key. If you want it like low key and to just like not have to like travel and do crazy things, like you're not going to, we would, Sleep in every day, pack an ice chest with drinks and adult drinks and water, and then grab some sandwiches and lunch and just go park at a beach and just sit. And Mm -hmm. you could spear fish, you could read a book, you could see different things, but seriously. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was United, but you literally flew into the island. So you flew right in the island, um, little tiny, tiny airport, but Eleuthera in the Bahamas is an incredible place if you've never been there. Oh, it's not, I want to go right now. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm in Michigan. It is winter. Okay, so what is your favorite dessert? I would say anything chocolate, but I'm a cake guy. I love cake. Cake would be a first to brownies would be a second. Cake, brownies, moist, that kind of moist chocolate cake. Oh, my God. Like there's a chocolate mousse cake or a tuxedo cake. <laughs> or Oh, my God. Or because I like Boston cream donuts. So it's like if you can do like a Boston cream cake or something with custard or pudding along with cake that make it moist. Or in Texas, because we have the Hispanic culture, we have a tres leches cake. So it's kind of like a cake with three milks. So anything that's more a really, really r- a rich and moist cake, preferably chocolate. Delicious. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so my next question is, what is your favorite word? Believe. Oh, I know that answer. Like that. It's the only word I have tattooed on my body. It's on the middle of my back with a cross. So when I was coaching and teaching, um, I, you, I really had to dig deep to figure out like, kind of like your motto, who you are. And I started out of nowhere with my coaching my kids. I used the word believe. I said, look, if you believe in yourself and believe in others and I believe in you. And so literally my baseball team, we would sign the, we would write it, we would write the word believe on a baseball and everybody would sign it. And then I got to the point where we would take that baseball and we would cut it open. And then if you're familiar with the baseball, it's just yarn. And so we would cut yarn, pieces of yarn off, and we would make bracelets and necklaces, and that would keep us together. And so it was our signifying that we believed in each other. But yeah, believe, I probably have in my office 22 signs and different wordings of, I mean, in different like designs of the word believe. Believe is, and for those that are close to me, I always know that. So I get tons of signs or different things for the believe, bracelets, different things. Believe, believe, believe is the biggest vocabulary word that I'm just in love with in life. Well, good to know. Absolutely. Great word. <laughs> um, okay, so I, have, I think I have one more question. Yes, ma'am. What's the most interesting thing we would find on your desk? On my desk? Let's see. Let me flash to my desk right now because I'm not in front of it. The most interesting thing you would probably see, I think interesting, I have a card of a kid I met at the World Series the last time the Astros were playing, and he wrote me a hand written card. And so it's crazy out of all my students and all the people, right? That kid's card with his picture literally is sitting on my desk, right to the left of my monitor. And it's not my kid. It's, it's interesting. It's a teacher's kid that we ended up meeting at the world series and things like that. And he wrote me a note. I ended up helping him get a hat and a glove and some things from the world series of his favorite player while we met him there. And so just that, that, that card of him, Every day I sit down, I just, it's just, a, it's a good reminder because, you know, you want good memories. It's a really good memory and it's handwritten from a seven-year-old. And so it's just one of those, like, you would think it would be my kid. And I only have one daughter and she's 29. So uh, that's, not, <laughs> that's not it. But yeah, I would say that card from that seven-year-old from Hunter. That's wonderful. Absolutely. I love that story. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. See, I love the GTKY part of the format. We get to get a chance to know each other. So Hey, everyone, that is the Flip 5. If you want to know more about GTKY questions or you want to join our weekly circles on Mondays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, head over to our website at rclfirst.com. That's rclfirst.com. And you can click on either links to get 28 GTKY questions or to join our weekly circles with Denise Holiday, Circle Mama. And we are having one uh, for New Year's Eve, along with uh, continuing into 2021. So, that part's out of the way, Allison. So now I want people to get a chance to know you. So let's update everybody. I know you have a, a long history of over 20 years in education, but let's update everybody where you're at right now and what your, role, what your current role is. Sure. I'm an elementary principal in Zeeland, Michigan. My school is Quincy Elementary, and I, I feel like I am the luckiest principal in the world. It's a fantastic school. The staff is phenomenal. Supportive community, of course, adore our students. So that's where I'm spending my seventh year as the principal of Quincy Elementary. And I cannot believe how quickly these seven years have flown by. But I've been a, a, a principal of every grade level. And I've taught grades three through eight. Um, I'm also an author. And I get the opportunity when it's not COVID world to travel the country as a national speaker, which is incredible. And I love that I get to spend my days with staff and students and families and then get to go out and meet different groups of educators and, and work with them across the country. It's, it's, um, it's kind of a perfect combination, I think. Absolutely. And I tell you, for me, that was the one thing, you know, that I kind of missed the most when I started traveling. It was like that connectedness of the kids and the staff on a regular basis, because it's really hard when you're, you know, you're going for a campus for a day, you know, and you meet some great kids and you meet some great people and you're out of there, you know, and, right. and to build that relationship. So when you think, let's start there for a second. When you think about seven years with your staff, I always talk about there's kind of like two levels of connection. There's campus connections with the staff and then there's classroom connections with the kids. So is there any examples or some things that you've intentionally done throughout your seven years that you have done strategically to help build connections with adults at the campus connection level? Yeah. Uh, oh, so many things. I mean, like you, 
my focus is relationships and connections. So I think one important, I was actually just talking with my husband about this. When my first year at Quincy, one of the most important things I did is to change almost nothing. Because I think it's so important to listen and to learn. And if we go in with kind of guns a-blazing as new leaders ready to make all of these dramatic changes, then we're likely to hit the mark at least 50% of the time because we, we don't know enough to know what changes need to take priority, what changes need to happen. And of course, you know, if there's things that are unsafe for students or really getting in the way of student learning, then those things have to be prioritized first. But I think it's so important to listen and to learn. And that's, I think, kind of pervasive throughout my leadership in that I lead with empathy and I lead with listening and being present, um, not just hearing, right, but listening to what staff and students and families are telling me. And in order to be a good listener, you have to also be a good questioner and you have to get out of your office Mm -hmm. because (laughs) you need to get out and see what's going on in the schools. There's so many things that, that we do at Quincy to to build relationships, to help students, staff, and families know that they're valued. But really at the core, listening and clear communication, follow through, those kind of things build trust. Mm. And trust is the cornerstone of relationships, as we all know. And then all of the other things are like fun additions, like things that show the staff that, that they're valued. Those are great and fun, like wearing my, my fanny pack with speakers around the school or creating a Zen zone so teachers have a spot to, to get away, you know, treats and, you know, all, all sorts of things. Those, those are like the sprinkles, but really the cake, right, it's, yeah. itself is listening, communication, and building trust oh. and sustaining trust. Absolutely. Wow. I love how you painted that layers to the cake because... One of the things that we always say is every, well, we say schools, but every human being, but every student, a teacher wants to feel valued, seen, and heard. And uh, we host, we host a, a conference every year, and we obviously didn't in the pandemic this year, but our last conference, we had a t-shirt, and we, we made it called the Student Connection Conference. So, like, the students were the center. We had over 100 students participate in the conference. We had students in breakouts, students leading conversation. We had had student keynotes. And so we made this T-shirt that said, see me, hear me, value me. And then on the back, it said, connect with me. But whether it's the teachers or whether it's the students or the teachers, that's why I say every human being, despite where you're at, whether you're in your family, you're in your work atmosphere, you want to feel valued, you want to feel seen, and you want to feel heard. And so I'm glad that you answered it that way. Because as you've pointed out, that's the cake. And then having the food and all the little caffeine carts and all the things that we do for them, which are great. But I like the way you describe it then because unfortunately, some people rely on the sprinkles to be the cake instead. And I learned a valuable lesson as you did. My first principal job, I didn't do as good a job as I should have as listening that first year. So kudos for you walking in. And I think, and I'm just going to be very vulnerable, I think it came from my coaching background. Because when I became a new baseball coach of a new program, I'm like, we're changing dugouts, we're changing uniforms, we're, you know, doing things different to signify that change. And fortunately or unfortunately, I took that same mental status and went into the leadership of principal and said, oh, no, we're going to change this and that. But what I do recall on is I didn't do it immediately on some things. But I remember second, the mid-semester, I changed my master schedule, and it blew everybody's minds. I stayed the entire Christmas break to, and bought a software program to change the whole. Okay. Because I had re, at the middle school level, I had evaluated this was not going to effectively meet our students' needs academically. And so they had done this for so long that I changed it mid-semester. And who in a small school, in a rural school, changing something mid-semester like your master schedule I went to my superintendent and told her my, you know, gave her my data points and everything. And she said, I support you. And now luckily, academically, we scored at our state level, everything 90. So we got the achievement of what we needed at the standardized test score. But what I do regret is the backlash of all of the personal things and the relationships that were almost to a certain word fractured because of my pushing on the gas versus, and so if I could have done something different, Sure, I would have taken the academic scores, but I wish I would have gone slower. So when you say that, 
I think that's great, great information to share with particularly new leaders. Would you kind of agree with that as you reflect? Oh, 100%. Um, one of the pieces of advice I got from George Kuros, and I actually, I think I was in my third year or something when I, I heard this from him, but I thought, oh, so perfect for first year administrators. Don't make one single change until you know a strength of every staff member and they know that you know that strength. And I think that speaks to Kevin, what you're talking about, value me. And so as a leader, if a staff member knows that you see their strengths, they know they're valued. And that's Mm. so important. Well said. Yeah. See, it's so funny because, you know, it's, I equate it to almost sometimes when we're going to be a parent, you know, and some parents are like, oh, we're having a baby. Are we ready? You know, and I don't think any, any adult is truly ever ready to be a parent because it's such a, a unique opportunity and experience and without ever doing it first. So, you know, just kind of equating, I think when you first get that first principal job and it's your building and you're in charge, you know, because this is, assist, you know, as an assistant principal, I can always say, you know, defer to, to, to the other side, but when it's your name on the door and you're making those decisions, I think that's a really, really good point because I think until we're the one at the top making those choices and making those those decisions on a daily basis, I think it's really hard to, you can't role play that, you know, Allison. And I think that until you actually get your feet in that position, it's very unique. And um, I think that's a great piece of advice. And, and I'm being really honest, I wish I would have surrounded myself with more people that would have guided me in that direction. And I'm not blaming, I just didn't have some of those words of wisdom that George gave you and some of those experiences. I had some great other ones uh, definitely and enhanced me, but I look back and there are so many things as I reflect as a leader that I, I wish I could have redone, particularly, and the more I lead schools now and the more I see other schools doing, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know? <laughs> much to learn every day, right? Uh, oh, absolutely. So great start with the, the, the campus connections. So let's go down to the kid connections. So seven years on the same campus, you get a chance to, and what I love about that is, is the, the, the familiarity and the connectedness in the relationship building you do over seven years versus that, you know, have you ever noticed a trend on some of those campuses when you're like, you're the fifth principal in three years, you know? Yeah. That, yeah. That, I haven't experienced that personally, but I definitely see that uh, across the board. And, you know, even seven years at one school, is a lengthy time. My, la- my principalship before this one, I spent 14 years at the same school and 11 of those years, I was an administrator, an assistant principal, and then a principal. So, so I am loyal. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but you, so I love the fact that what we have to possibly also learn is, is we get, we, we shift, sometimes central office shifts administrators around. So, yeah. yep. so I don't even know what the word is because I don't know if there's a plan or if they randomly like shake up a bag and then just like see where the, right, I think all of the above. <laughs> I don't know. And I'm not making fun, but it just, and I've worked in a really, really large school district in, in, in San Antonio at, at my last job. And I swear it just seemed like from principals to assistant principals, you, you know, you would come back the next school year and they would, you know, you'd have convocation or whatever and reintroduce everybody. And you're like, he's here now and she's there now and this person's there. And you, and it's not that we're supposed to know every rhyme or reason, but it just seems like every year they just kind of shake it up like Yahtzee and throw it out there and see where they're all landing. And so, so seven years right now and 14 years on the other, when you look at building, now we talk about building the relationships with kids. What are some of the things that when you look at it, either strategic or even organic or what are some some things that we should focus on when we start looking at building relationships with the kids i guess as a principal my philosophy is that i'm like marshmallow fluff to kids like i i have great relationships with them we have so much fun we play at recess you know we have a fanny pack with speakers with music playing and i was on the roof on our last day before christmas break with an elf waving to them and you know saying goodbye So all of that stuff is wonderful, but there's only one person on campus who is going to focus on taking care of the teachers. I'm the only administrator on campus. Teachers hopefully are going to help take care of each other. But if I don't take care of teachers, if I don't focus on my relationships with teachers about, you know, great communication, about making school a need satisfying place for them, that impact is going to trickle down to the kids. But if teachers feel valued and secured and we have great relationships and there's great communication 
if all of the, it, it's a need to find environment for teachers, then they're going to be able to take care of kids. So that's that my philosophy as a, as a principal is that it's my job, my first job to take care of teachers. Then my second job, the marshmallow fluff stuff is to have fun with kids because I absolutely love kids. Um, but I think too many administrators focus on exciting, building relationships with kids and neglect that, that teacher level. And I think that is part of the reason why we have so much teacher burnout and we don't have as many people coming into the profession. Like we have, we have to take care of our teachers as administrators because nobody else will. Mm. There's nobody else in that role. Man, I wholeheartedly agree with you. In fact, when I left, you know, my leadership role in school and came and created this organization, my philosophy was the same thing. Take care of the people that take care of you. I mean, if you take care of them and meet their needs, they're going to be great consultants. They're going to be great teachers. They're going to meet the kids. They're going to be, they're going to at least be more moldable and shapeable in understanding your vision and understanding what you're needing from them. And then they're going to be, if they feel secure in their relationship with you. And that's, what's interesting because as I was mentioning earlier, before you started recording, that's one of those things I was telling you that I just see as a common connection piece is they always say, okay, if the administrators have strong relationships with their staffs and they focus on that base layer as you're talking about it, right? So, so as an example, if you're saying the cake is, is marshmallow fluff and the, you know, all that other stuff, it's like, well, the foundation, whether it be the plate or whether it be, you know, something, <laughs> right. you know, like, like the, like, what are we going to build my, my campus on? I'm going to build it on me taking care of my teachers. Cause if I do that as the plate, then therefore everything that we set on it is going to be firm and steady and it's not going to be wiggly like jello. And if it does wiggle, I love it. You're that marshmallow cream because you know that <laughs> stuff, it just sticks to everything, right? So that's kind of the glue. So that's really, really, really a great analogy. And I can really see philosophically how you layer, I, I, you know, again, we're just meeting, but I can see philosophically how you layer intentionality into your leadership and the fact that you're describing it, it's almost like, well, then there's this trickle down, a, you know, a, a point. Right. It trickles right. down to the kids. And, and what your point is, some administrators forget the plate and go right to, okay, I got to be, I got to build relationships with the kids. I've got to be the popular one. And I've got to go around and, and high five with the kids and build relationships with the kids. And we kind of bypass the plate of taking care of our teachers. And I think, right. oh, man, that's a, an amazing message that I think I would wish and hope that more administrators could at least understand the difference between the two. And if you're not doing that, maybe just rethink and reflect a little bit, particularly in the pandemic, to think about, okay, now more than ever, I think that plate is definitely a priority in in, in these in this pand pandemic pedagogy. Would you agree? Right, right. And just a specific example is, so we ask teachers to do check-ins with their students. And in fact, at, at, at our school, we do a check-in when they arrive first thing in the morning. And it's, you know, just checking on where they are. Like even with the pandemic, how are you feeling physically? How are you feeling emotionally? Is there anything you want to talk with me about? And then they do it again after lunch. Well, as a leader, before we did that with kids, I did that with teachers. And I don't do it every day because it'd be a little, maybe a little bit too much for them. But every Monday morning, I send out a check-in and say, you know, how are you feeling about the, the week ahead? Are you feeling like I'm, I'm great, I'm prepared? Or are you feeling overwhelmed, but you got it under control? Or do you need some help? And there's a spot to put comments. And, you know, I've provided everything from, you know, little handwritten cards to, a sub for a couple hours so that they could get some grading done, like whatever they need. If they let me know in that check-in, I'm going to work hard to take care of them and get them what they need. So that like, we also ask teachers to create like calm corners for kids mm -hmm. in the classroom or a spot where a kid can just go and just get regulated, right. And some strategies. Well, do we have that in a school for teachers? Mm. And we didn't <laughs> really, I mean, we have a lounge, we have spots for teachers and go to the bathroom and calm down if they need to. But I created, we created with, uh, as a staff, a Zen zone for teachers. And it's a room where they can just go and get regulated or they go in there and they grade their papers or they take phone calls or whatever the case is. They can go in there and just say, put a sign up that says occupied, or they can go up in there and say a friend is welcome because there's a maximum capacity of two. So the point is that if we're saying to teachers, you know, we're going to take care of students this way, it's really powerful to also take care of teachers that way. 
Absolutely. No. In fact, that's one of the things that we bring up during our training is when Edutopia put out a video called Tap In, Tap Out, they were talking about like they had had a third party where you could send a text message and then that third party, like a floater would come and relieve you. And then you could go to that kind of Zen space, a safe space. And so, no, that is one thing that we have always encouraged because as you said, you know, unfortunately, what we have learned as you're actually illustrating we have to focus on the camp and c- campus connections just as much as we focus on the classroom connections. That's right. why it's really what I started to learn through this work, Allison, is, is hey, if we're going to connect with kids, ideally, I would love for us to start to disconnect with adults first. And so there are a few campuses and districts that I've worked with that have literally followed that method and said, hey, if we're going to implement this, then why don't we practice these tools with the adults first? And let's see how the adults can experience them. Let's see how it takes care of their needs. Like, so for example, even at Ed White, we did a check-in, check-up, and check-out. So Mondays were check-ins, Wednesdays were check-ups, and Fridays were check-outs so that we would have a pulse. For our tools, NEDRP, we ended up creating pulse meters. And so we have a pulse meter that allows us to kind of check on a pulse. And we use that as a tool. And that's one of our training components. So, but what I explained to them is, is exactly what you're saying is, if we were going to use a pulse meter for kids, what about a pulse meter for adults? And it seems so simple, but yet when we say it, they're like, oh, right? Mm -hmm. Like it just went right above our heads because we're so focused. It's like we bypass that level of adults and we go right to the kids, you know, and hey, I'm I'm kid-centered like anyone else, but I'm with you. I really share your philosophy and, and I do share it even, I was like that way as a leader, but the more I've implemented and seen the pitfalls of, of where this falls through the cracks, I'm like, you have no relationships with your adults. Like you're so focused on the kids that the adults, this is just one more thing on their plate. There's no trust. There's no, the, all of the things that you talked about as a foundation. And then we're so guilty of just saying, well, here's another initiative or, oh, the, these tools are great. And you write bypass the, the adults and we go right to the kids and then they wonder why the teachers are struggling with buying into it or seeing the value into it or trusting the administrator is this one more thing and it's just going to go away next year and we're just right. we got to right. yeah, cut our teeth on this one and this one's going to disappear too so i i love the conversation of how you're shaping it around where do we do where if we start with the adults and we stay there and we take care of that foundation of it it is literally the foundation of everything else that you can place on it. So thank you for sharing that. That is a great, great visual for, you know, for our leaders. If you're not leading that way, you have to think, how can I get there? Right. 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 And there's, I mean, I'm a work in progress. I think we're all works in progress. I'm learning every single day. And, you know, even in this, Kevin, in this conversation with you, you get my wheels spinning in different ways. So I so appreciate it. Absolutely. You know, I I love Brene Brown and and I, I always say this, but man, when she said, you know, in daring leaders, in daring leaders, you know, we need to stop trying to be right. We just need to get it right. And I think, and I think that was like a light bulb moment for me because I think unfortunately in our systems, in, in our society, it's all about whether right or wrong. And I tell people as a human being, as a person, as a, as a CEO, as a leader, I'm just trying to get it right. And like you said, I need to, I need, therefore I need to lead with grace and, the, and I learn now, not just through leadership, but through this, through this work. I'm, I am now, Allison, a better listener because mm-hmm. I was, and I'm being honest, I was forced through this work and through restorative to be, a, you know, it, it, it requires you to be a better listener. So how can I teach this stuff if I'm actually not modeling it? So now all of a sudden I'm like, holy cow, I'm a, so much of a better listener now because after, it's like anything else. If you practice it over and over and over before you know it, you're like, holy cow, I'm a better listener. Oh my God, I understand. I understand other points of view. I have my co-founder and we're both 51 and she lives in Austin. Her name is Denise, the one that does our weekly circles. And she even said through this work, she said, Kevin, at 50 years old, she said, I'm like rewriting my definition of empathy. Yes. Like yes. Rewriting it because I've experienced it in so many different ways. She said, I'm literally rewriting my vocabulary in my fifties where I thought like, it's good, you know, <laughs> right, does that make right. sense to you as a leader, as you're right. rewriting some of your definitions and 
And I feel like this pandemic has even done that because it's so divisive and there's so it's we're we're so por- polarized as a society. And I want to refrain from judgment and give grace. And it's really caused me to understand that, you know, everybody is coming at our current situations with their own values and biases, but also their own fears. Mm-hmm. And fear has really driven a lot of opinions and, you know, whether like I'm, my job has been secure this whole time. So right. I, I have to understand that not everybody has this, the same situation. I don't have family members who are like all many in a high risk category and others do like there's, there's so many different ways that we've come at this pandemic that it's really, if I want to continue to show grace and refrain from judgment, it's really caused me to dig deeper into understanding what's going on with others, but also know that even if I don't understand and I don't have the information, there's more to the story. And there's a reason why they're feeling the way that they're feeling. And, you know, even if I don't understand, I just know that they've got their own set of challenges. They're dealing with. So, you know, what's interesting is, and I totally agree with you. I think one of the things that restorative has taught me, which is what the pandemic is enlightening other people is you can't tell someone how they should feel. No, no. Well, but unfortunately, going into schools in the past, pre-pandemic, I would bring in this listening, empathetic, a fight is not a fight is not a fight, a tardy is not a tardy. Everything is like you said, they all have different circumstances surrounding it. But what's so interesting is before the pandemic, we had certain biases and beliefs that really shut down our ability to really see other people's points of views. And if I look at it, and as I trans, as I kind of trans in and look back, and I start to say, okay, here, this is what we're experiencing now, and I'm not a, a loose comparison, but what I'm saying is, this is what restorative did to me. It pushed me because I always tell people, look, I was a football coach, Allison. I was nose and nose and toes to toes. I was a suspension machine. We led the district with 1,149 types of suspension. I could get rid of kids in a heartbeat. And with no guilt or no remorse, that was me. I was trained and really good at my job. If kids acted up, they go. But then when I was enlightened in the school to Princeton pipeline, then I was enlightened what the data does. And then when I started realizing, I'm like, oh my God, I'm a cog in a wheel of a systemic approach that's particularly setting up our black or brown kids to be unsuccessful, not only in school, but in life, right? And so once I started to see like the macro view of it, that's why I really struggled and realized there has to be a different approach because after I suspend a kid nine times and he doesn't be changed his behavior, what's number 10 for, right? right? Now we get it. So when I started using restorative conferencing and circles and conversations and all these tier two, tier three strategies that I was being trained in, what was interesting is, is exactly what we're experiencing in the pandemic. All of a sudden I'm seeing there's some underlying conditions, experiences, feelings, things that we're experiencing now and recognizing that we're just more human now. And I'm not attacking us, but I will say we were failing to recognize the, the humanistic parts of the conflicts and confrontations that right. students were experiencing pre-pandemic. And I'm hoping and praying that as a result of the pandemic, that that part that that empathetic, listening, compassionate, grace, things that we're experiencing, we're trying to pass on to each other now, that when we eventually work our way through this, that we won't immediately click, you know, flip the switch back to off and those, those feelings and, and those that ability to grace and listen and deal with kids' conflict and confrontation. I hope those things will be taken in consideration because the only way, the only way that I transform from that hard disciplinarian and not to a softer person, but to a more compassionate person who yeah. really understood grace. The only way I did that, Allison, was listening and really listening and going, so that's why he acted that way. Or right. that's why that happened. Or that's why the teacher and the student didn't get along. And once they saw how each other felt, that, that communication, and then all of a sudden we had that connectedness. So do you, do you see the parallel when I'm bringing them to what we're experiencing right. now? Is I was kind of ahead of the game as far as empathy, compassionate, because of this work. And now I'm like, wow, we're all kind of experiencing together. What's your thoughts when I kind of put that out there? So when I get an opportunity to, to go into, into 
to speak to groups of educators and incorporated into my books. One of the concepts is this idea of the movie Groundhog Day. Are you familiar with that movie? Okay, so Bill Murray's character experiences the same Groundhog Day over and over again, wakes up and is stuck in this kind of nightmare of the cycle of experiencing the same day over and over again. And it's not until he changes that, that he's able to move on and the day changes. And I liken that to discipline and educators in that if we're going to continue to use the same tools that we have been using over and over again, we are going to get the same result. Mm-hmm. But if we want a different result, what needs to change is us. And I'm not going to say that we are like, you know, best restorative practice school in the world at Quincy Elementary, but we have implemented some one component in particular that has really kind of changed our view of um, discipline issues. And, and we call it restorative recess. And we don't like that it happens during recess, but we can't figure out a different place to put it right now. But essentially, and this is our third year, I think we started halfway through two years ago. So this is our third school year with restorative recess. But when there is a, a we have a rubric with different levels of, you know, kind of minor behavior issues, major behavior issues. And in the rubric, it's we talk through the behavior with the student and talk through our expectations and then help them see where, you know, their behavior didn't match the expectation. But at at one point in the rubric, then we moved to restorative recess. And during that time, the the students answered very simple questions. What happened? Mm -hmm. What were you thinking? How were you feeling? Who was affected? Mm -hmm. And what what ideas do you have to repair the damage? Mm -hmm. And in that simple, like, just like, swap of how we handle discipline issues has created this opportunity to listen more to students because we're asking different questions like that. And, and, you know, we kind of have shifted the questions and rearranged them and changed our forms as we moved along, but it has been transformational in that, you know, as after you finish asking those questions, you know, the student is resolving the issue. Like they understand what happened. They feel so much better because they have a plan for moving forward. It's, it is a definite switch, and we're still working with many of our students to, you know, in that, that last question, which is, you know, how, how, do you, how do you want to fix this? What ideas do you have to fix this? And often they just say, don't ever do it again. And that's great <laughs> to never do it again. But let's talk about like who is affected and how can you repair that? And, and I mean, I'm preaching to the choir right here. But I wanted to share that that was one really simple change that really transformed conversations and how we've handled discipline. Wow. Kudos to you. So what's interesting is what you experienced and what you developed is based on on when I told you I teach about differentiated discipline is because as you just use the word conversation, unfortunately, we're we're brought up. And as you mentioned, Groundhog, I always say we're living out the definition of insanity. We could continue to do the same thing <laughs> right. every day, ex- expecting a different result, right? So, yeah. so that's our analogy of Groundhog. And so what I tell them is, is I said, okay, I want you to think about the current discipline system that we've all grown up in, right? It is typically consequence driven first, right? Go through your rubric. Okay, you did this, you get this consequence. So it was interesting when I was first introduced to restorative, then they were teaching me the conversation. Like you said, what happened? Who's been impacted? How are we going to make, you know, the, the same effective questions, right? And so I actually had a card, you know, the IRP business card, and I would use them in those types of questions. So as I developed going through those restorative conversations and consequence or co- conferences and, and anything, I started noticing, yes, when we have the conversation, to me, that's when we have the best opportunity to experience accountability, because right. ownership, would you agree with that? 100%, yes. So then here's what I started to notice. When some of the schools first started to hire me, and as you said, and I tell people, and as you said, I, I don't know, I don't have all the answers either. And I certainly owned it at the beginning. I said, look, I'm still working through this. But what they wanted to know, Allison, was, was how do we hold them, how do we give them a consequence and then hold them accountable? And I was like, okay. So I worked with a handful of school districts trying to go down that path. And we kept running into the same kind of dead end obstacles. And here's what happens. The problem with today's students in today's society, and and I'm not blaming, I'm just making my observations in today's parents, is that a lot of times when our students make mistakes, we don't have that same home life 
where remember when we got in trouble boy was there accountability there was accountability at school there was accountability at right. home like and if even if you didn't do it if an adult said you did it dang it you did it right you i mean you were accountable no matter what so what's happening was as i tried to tell them is as i said i think we're doing it out of order mm. and they said what do you mean and i said so that's when i switched my methodology and i said i recommend that we have the conversation first and then we do the consequence because what I was noticing is, is if you assigned a consequence to a kid, even if they did it in their mind there, again, I'm just kind of identifying my experiences. But what I was seeing is kids were like, I didn't do that. I got you on the camera or you have 17 witnesses and 87 videos, you know, and the, but the, I didn't do it. And then their parents are like, my child would never do that, you know? And so you're experiencing this lack of accountability so if you assigned a consequence, whether it was loss of recess or detention or in-school suspension, out-school suspension, they never accepted that they actually did it. They just accepted the consequences un you know, with not liking that, right? So then right. you could have the parent drive them home, Allison, and say, you know, this stupid school, you know, they never, you know, if you should blame the school right. and convince the kid, even though the kid red-handedly did this, made the disrespect, broke something, fought, whatever, they would, there was no accountability even in the home. So then if you said, well, now I want you to uh, sit down with the other person. I want you to talk about this. And I'd be like, why? I didn't do it. There, there were no. So what I started saying is, is before we could assign the consequence, let's have a conversation. So when yeah. I first come in my office and so for me is I took the restorative questions and I hope that you'll appreciate this. I developed a whole new format dealing with conflict and confrontation and I call it the four F's. So I took the same restorative questions and I start off with now when the kid comes in, as long as they're not in fight or flight or freeze. We have that conversation. They fill out the sheet. We can dialogue it together, but we start out with the facts. What mm -hmm. happened? So we do the facts, then we do the feelings, then we do the fix, and then we do the future. Mm -hmm. So the same piece. Yeah. So when the four F's, and I actually have the four F's on the wall. So when the kids come in, I'm like, you know, we're doing the four F's. And they're like, okay, Mr. Curtis. So we're doing the facts. What happened? So what's interesting about the facts, this is where the kids want to argue. You know how they always, he said, she said stuff. Oh, no, 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 no. And so what I've noticed, the, what I've noticed as a pattern is they love to argue about the facts. Oh, mm -hmm. it happened at 802. No, it wasn't. It was 822. <laughs> I mean, but we spend, how many times have we spent as an administrator? Oh my God. Just like trying to figure out the facts. So what I try to tell oh, especially them. Especially with like kindergartners, right? Oh, I know. Right. So what I tell them is <laughs> sometime this morning between 8 and 830 or sometime this morning, this was happened. And what I noticed is, is when I put a parenthesis or a parameter around the facts, at least I acknowledged it happened during this time frame. What was interesting, Alice, then they stop arguing. Right. Because you've right. now established a parameters for facts and now they don't want to argue. I said, can we, we got general the facts. Can we spend some more time on the feelings? Because as you as illustrated, this is where now we have to talk about, well, who was impacted? How right. did it make them feel? Right. So this is where we spend all that time about who was impacted, secondary victims and all those people. Then we're going to go to the fix. What are we going to do to make this as right as possible? And that's where we talk about that. And then one piece that I was leaving out that I added was the future. I now love that. What are we yeah. going to do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? And so we're going to check back in. Who are you going to check back in? Well, you're going to check back in with the counselor. I'm going to check back in with you. And we put one extra piece that I think can help you and the listeners is if you ever feel like you're re-escalating or this is coming back up or, or we have instigators and some people come back and say, you know, she still is talking about you or whatever, the agreement, and we have a, we have a form that they sign on this 4S that they're going to come back to me. So yeah. when they come back, Allison, they're saying, I'm still hearing things because what I tell them is if you go confront that other child, it's, it's a lose-lose situation. But if you come back to me, we can reconvene we can do those things, right? And have that conversation. Yeah. So we finish up everything that you're doing. And then this is the added piece. You know, Allison, I love that you own this. I love that you did this. I love the fact that we had this conversation and you're willing to make it right. But uh, here's where either under the student code of conduct or because of violations or because of what, I still need to assign a consequence. And when you do it at the end, I'm not saying they like it, but you can't take away the accountability now because you've already established that. So what I always tell them is a conversation first, consequence second, and, and you know we don't have the entire episode to do this, but I actually teach you how to assign a consequence that will actually meet their needs and get them to m probably work on changing their behavior versus just something that's in a matrix. 
And it's yeah. called, it's based on strategies, needs, and outcomes. And that's how I built differentiated discipline. And so there's a great book out there called Don't Suspend Me. I wish I would have written it. They call theirs alternative discipline. But if you really want to dive into it, there's three things for alternative discipline that must take place. One, they have to do something restorative, something reflective, and something instructional. So when you look at it, it's just like your restorative recess. It just gives you those tools, as you said, to hold them accountable and still somewhat of a consequence. And then I think we kind of have a, for lack of terms, a kind of a win-win out of that. So what are your thoughts when I say that? Yeah. Yeah. Same kind of concept too, in that I don't have them sign a contract, but I do say like, (laughs) you know, I want you to come back to me if if this persists and we're going to work on it. And then we do the consequences after the conversation. The kids don't use the the rubric. I, I do think that having some kind of rubric gives staff a little bit of peace of mind and mm-hmm. that they know like, you know, here's what I should do if this comes up. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate having a rubric, but also a rubric that gives us some flexibility to respond to student needs is, is really important. So, I mean, I, I love the, the four F's. I think those make great sense and, you know, definitely is aligned with what we're doing, but I love that concept of, okay, now let's talk about this. And we yeah. do, but it's not, it's not in our, uh, restorative recess form. So there might be a new iteration coming in the new year. Well, so the only thing I can tell you, so at Ed White, when we were doing all of these restorative conversations, our consultants reminded us that when you do these conversations, whether it's at recess, whether it's behind door, wherever you happen, if the other, and I'm just being really honest, if the other teachers don't experience it, then in their world, we got called the apology program. The, you know, yeah. we, we, it, you, all the kid had to do was own it, say they were sorry, and then that was it. So what was interesting is, is we were doing these conferences and conversations. And so I said, so what do you suggest as a tool to kind of enhance this and and allow the teachers to feel like there's some accountability in this? And that's when they said there needs to be this form that everybody signs. And I said, okay. And it was crazy. First semester of implementation, we didn't use a form. Second semester, Allison, we implemented the form. But we didn't change the process. The conversations were the same. We just recorded it on a form and everybody signed it. And we put in there, you know, we put in, if this continues to happen, a traditional consequence may, you know, be considered, you know, all this stuff. And here's the deal. We would put it in their discipline file. And if the teachers were involved in it, you know, kind of a FERPA thing, but if they were involved or that was their student, we would send them a copy of it. Holy cow. Night and day, the perception, because perception is reality. The yep. perception around these restorative conversations completely changed for the teachers because they would look at this form and go, oh, finally something's being done. And I, and I just <laughs> giggled. I giggled. I giggled because I was like, we didn't change anything we were doing as far as the accountability, the restorative questions. All we did is formalize it on a document and give the teachers a copy of that so that they could because if they weren't a part of that conversation, they could see the notes and what was the, the follow-up plan and they could see all those things. And I think that literally saved our lives because I don't know if we would have got to year two or three, they would have probably just like, you know, boycotted anything restorative if the cult- consultants had not guided us to use some documentation that second semester. So, you know, I look back and, and I tell people all the time, you have to develop your own systems and approach. I just, I, just, I recommend I don't sure. require, but I will tell you that that was a huge light bulb for me when, like you said, teachers want to see rubrics. They want to see, you know, we want to see some type of systematic approach because it can't just be randomly, you no. know, when, when those. And so I love the fact that you've set up the rubric and that you have a systematic approach, but yet you have a restorative lens when it comes to accountability and the conversations. I, I think that's fantastic. It has been win-win for us. And and I think, you know, what you're talking about with that form really goes back to that pillar of trust, which is communication. So there's like that clear communication of here is the process. One of the things that we did in out of necessity, but also that really worked in our favor is when we first started our restorative recess, teachers signed up to be the restorative recess teacher. Mm-hmm. So all of, well, I wouldn't say all, but many, many of our teachers were actually in the room implementing that restorative process. And that was so helpful in kind of like spreading it because at Quincy Elementary, just like everywhere, we have our early adopters, we have our people who resist everything, no matter what it is, and then, you know, everybody else in between. So 
our early adopters were on board, but we kind of collected the majority of staff through, you know, just hands-on experience with the restorative recess format. So that was really helpful. No, and it's so funny because our approach at the middle school was a little bit different. So when we had our early adopters, like you said, they were all in. For the people that were in the middle, what we would, we literally would intentionally do is I would get their class covered at the secondary level so that they could come in and they can experience it. Even if they weren't part of the questioning and participant, I wanted them to experience it in the room. And so, because as you said, for me, the only way to quote unquote, get buy-in is through an experience. You you, you can read a book and, and get interested. You could get some information there. For me, the only way to really feel what's happening in the room is you have to be in the room and you right. have to experience when that kid, the light bulb comes on. And, and some teachers have said, I've never heard that kid own anything before. Or you start to understand the home life or the circumstances surrounding it. And I don't use those as excuses, but they are beneath the surface, right? What right. is beneath the surface? Because at the tip above the iceberg, all you're seeing is the chair and throw or the meltdown or the, or the words or the actions of the kids. And when you come in that room and that conversation, if they feel safe, they'll share what's beneath the surface. And I think that I know for me personally, there's been some kids and I tell people all the time, I don't like all kids. I love kids, but there are some kids that are oil and water with me, Allison. And it has taken some of those restorative conversations for me to utilize empathy and compassion and grace to see past some of their behaviors and their personal interactions with me to really break down that walls. And so I can say I've experienced, that's why I'm hoping that other educators can experience that. So I love the fact that you are more or less organically allowing those, those, those seeds of experience to, to happen on your campus. But I think what you've set in motion will continue to pay off. Not only for the students, will they learn to own it and experience some accountability and, and they're in elementary. So at this point, if they can start to grow at this point, and, right. and just own some of their own experiences and their choices and to let kids know, I don't expect you to be perfect. Right. I have that conversation all the time. Like you're a kid, you get to make mistakes. I'm a grown up. I make mistakes. That what we need to do now is just to learn from it and, and fix it and then figure out what we need to do to not have it happen again. All the time, those conversations, because they like this restorative process, as you're asking them to reflect, um, they, they can feel some serious shame. And oh. I don't want them to feel shame, like Absolutely. a little guilt maybe, <laughs> but I don't want them to feel shame. So um, they just really need some support to, to move beyond that and to, to understand that, you know, tomorrow's a new day. It's, you know, it's going to get better from here. Absolutely. Wow. You really shipped that really well today. So, so if we put a period on that, as we start to wind down this episode, so let me ask you a question. What are you passionate about in education right now? What is Allison just really passionate about in education right now? What's on your forefront? I am passionate about trauma-informed practices, and it's all aligned with everything that, that we've talked about. And it's really just, for me, this, this thread of empathy and grace and refraining from judgment and understanding that everybody has their own story and their own set of challenges. And Dr. Adolph Brown talks about the two backpacks that students come to school with one filled with all their school supplies and books and the other filled with all their emotional baggage. And also as, as leaders, as colleagues, understanding that educators also come to school with two backpacks. I am passionate about just refraining judgment, doing whatever we can to, to support one another. And my favorite word for anybody who, who knows my work is serendipity. And serendipity means happy accidents. But for me, it's more of a mindset where if we go through our lives looking for happy accidents and beautiful lessons and everything we experience, because they're there if we look for them. And I'm talking about like our deepest sorrows to like joys beyond our imagination, everything in between. If we look for happy accidents and beautiful lessons, we're going to live richer, more fulfilled, wiser lives. And I think it's really important to model that and to teach that to both educators I don't know, the world really, and also students. So like my books, I have a a book for, well, almost every age level with that philosophy included. So I'm I'm very passionate about spreading that message. Yeah, so so let's talk about the book. Uh, uh, Let's let's let our listeners know about the book and where they can get the book. And and, and just, I love that because that 
it is interesting because obviously um are you i'm sure you're familiar with the movie serendipity yes so, that's yeah. where my that 2001 john cusack and Kate yes where oh. i my passion for serendipity started and it's a great romantic comedy actually i taught a class to a group of seventh and eighth graders i was teaching them a, a choice theory social emotional learning class and i didn't want to call it that because i thought they might turn their noses up to if I called it, you know, character education. So I called the class serendipity. And that was right after seeing the, that movie. And so that's where my passion for serendipity started. Oh, that's awesome. Because I was going to say, I mean, as soon as I saw the title, I was like, oh my God, the movie. Uh, I love it, <laughs> yes. love it, love it, love it. So let's talk a little bit about the book. So I want people to know about the book. Well, there's four. Okay, um, sorry. Thank you. <laughs> this is, my first book is called The Path to Serendipity. Right. And it's um, subtitles Discover the Gifts Along Life's Journey. And it's a, it's a feel-good book, and I get feedback from others about just embracing that idea of looking for happy accidents and beautiful lessons. And then I share stories in here, and it's really not about my journey, but about the reader's journey and the things that the reader connects with throughout the book. So this is, uh, it's just a really good, I, well, I shouldn't say really good, but it's a really feel-good book. And then my second book, because I'm obsessed with serendipity, is a retelling of the origin of the word serendipity, um, which is a 16th century Persian tale called The Three Princes of Serendip. My, my retelling of that um, story is called The Princes of Serendip, and it's a picture book that's illustrated by Molly Blythdell. And it's a, a social-emotional learning book where you discover the gifts of pride and hard work, kindness, and gratitude along with like what the, that idea of serendipity is. It's a, and it's a longer picture book, so it's great for older students and younger students enjoy it too. It has some repetition in it. So, uh, and then being an elementary principal writing this, I got to test it out on elementary students. Um, my third book is called Through the Lens of Serendipity. It's helping others discover the um, best in themselves, even if life has shown them its worst. And that's that trauma-informed lens, but it goes beyond like, it, of course, trauma-informed practices with students and then as a, a school leader, but then also with colleagues and with parents. So it kind of stretches that umbrella to all of the relationships that we have in the educational world. And then my most recent book is called The Serendipity Journal. And this is a middle grades realistic fiction chapter book that takes some of the ideas of the path of serendipity and through the lens of serendipity and, uh, and applies them. This is the book I dreamed about when I was teaching this grade level because I was teaching students William Glasser's choice theory. And it's really this kind of philosophy of identifying what we can control, identifying how to meet our own needs, and then self-evaluation, goal setting, and all of that is incorporated into a compelling, realistic fiction story that has just fun illustrations. This was illustrated by Genesis Kohler, and it, there, there's um, journaling back and forth between the main character and her teacher. So a lot of those lessons are embedded into those that journaling back and forth. So wow. yes, I'm, I'm about to meet with a group of students in Virginia who they're reading the Serendipity Journal. Wow, wow. I love how you've kind of kind of broken it down and kind of really taken it the same thread, but how you've you've kind of taken a little twist on each one of them. Wow. Congratulations. That is amazing. So where can they find the books at? Uh, they're on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or, you know, anywhere you can target or Walmart, whatever, wherever you can purchase books. Okay. And then uh, do you want to mention a little bit about the podcast? That you're sure. A yes. Yes. In fact, my co-host just texted me and said she overcommitted, so we need to reschedule. But um, my, I have a podcast that's called Rising Tide Radio, and it's a leadership podcast that is specifically we created it for women in leadership and educational leadership. Um, but we have found that it's not exclusive. Like our our audience also includes many men in educational leadership. But Jennifer Hogan is a high school assistant principal and. She is my co-host and she's absolutely incredible. So anytime we get to spend together is, is just a, a joy and um, that it's resonated with others has been a huge benefit. Awesome. And, and I'm assuming they can, is there any specific platform and they can find it on other platforms? All the platforms. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Apple that, Podcasts, that's exciting. Wow. Man, I told you when I reached out to you, I was excited to get to know more about you. I, I definitely knew there were some layers there, but Allison, I had no idea how much we had in common and, yeah. and some of our thoughts and process. And I'm really, um, 
uh, proud to get to know you personally and professionally. And I'm hoping that this podcast has made a difference for me. I will tell you, like I'm really taking away some visuals and big pictures of some of the things that you share today. Is there any uh, last message you want to share with our potential, our listeners that you want to kind of have some closing, uh, closing thoughts? Yes. Yeah, so one of my closing thoughts that I always put out there is that you're enough. Just the way you are, you are absolutely enough. And moving step by step, inch by inch toward the person you want to become every day is enough. And I think as educators, sometimes we're really hard on ourselves and we gloss over the strengths that we have and really focus on our weaknesses. And I encourage all of the listeners to, to take a moment and reflect on their own strengths, how they're sharing them with others. And if you're not sharing them with others, I encourage you to find a platform to share and then just really accepting that, you know what, just as we are, we're enough. And all we can do is move toward the person we want to become every day. Wow. Well said, man, way to end something positive, because I would tell you, I tell people all the time, it's okay to not be okay. You know, yeah. it, you are enough. And I know that sometimes we feel like this year is, is, is challenging us to question, you know, are we enough? And so thank you for reminding our listeners, because these episodes are going to come back out. We're going to start 2020. One with a positive message from Allison today. And I just want to thank you, Allison, for, for not only just inspiring me, but being an inspiration in education. I love your commitment, as you said, loyalty. I, as I listen to your story today, that is definitely one word that helps me describe if somebody said, how would you describe Allison? She is loyal. Um, the <laughs> amount of time that you spent on campuses, the amount of time that you spent in your craft and in your work and in your writings and what you do kudos. Uh, congratulations on all the success that you've had so far. I continue to wish you more success and I want to continue to follow you and learn from you. And as you grow, hopefully I grow and can learn from you just like others. Um, I'm going to thank you for your, for your valuable time for being on the show this, uh, this morning. And I just want to appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kevin. I, I have lots of takeaways also. So thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So as we close out this episode, I just want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Remember, if you need any more information about the podcast, uh, head over to rclfirst.com. And with that said, stay safe. Happy New Year. And we will connect with you next time. Happy New Year. 